When I began researching and planning the current exhibition about Lafayette uh, about 18 months ago, I quickly learned that to my great good fortune, a new major biography of Lafayette was about to be published. Being something of a Lafayette neophyte at the time, I was delighted and relieved to realize that I could be among the immediate beneficiaries of the latest and best scholarship on the subject. And that brings us to this evening's speaker. After receiving an undergraduate degree from Harvard University, Dr. Laura Oricchio went on to earn a PhD in art history at Columbia. She's a specialist in 18th and 19th century French and American history, art history, and visual culture, as well as a scholar of contemporary art and gender studies. She's been the recipient of a number of major fellowships, including a Fulbright, and is today the Dean of the School of Undergraduate Studies at the New School for Public Engagement in New York, where she also teaches art history. Dr. Arricchio's publications include her book, Adelaide Labie Guillard, Artist in the Age of Revolution, which was published by the J. Paul Getty Museum in 2009. The exhibition catalog, Royalists to Romantics, Women Artists from the Louvre, Versailles, and Other French National Collections, 1750 to 1850, which came out in uh, 2012, as did her co-edited volume, Invaluable Trees, Cultures of Nature, 1660 to 1830. Dr. Arricchio's most recent book, which was published by Knopf just last year and is the impetus for her being with us here tonight, is the superb and highly readable The Marquis, Lafayette Reconsidered. And Dr. Arricchio will be signing copies of this book out in the bow room after the talk. So please give, join me in giving a very warm welcome to Dr. Laura Arricchio. Thank you, David. And thank you all for being here this evening. I know it's a very hot night, so I was actually honestly somewhat shocked to see that people would venture out willingly on a night like this. So thank you all for coming. It's a delight and an honor to be here. I've just seen the beautiful exhibition curated by Dr. Derringer, and it is magnificent. And if you have not seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, I also just want to give my sincere thanks to Victoria O'Malley, who I don't know if she's in the room, but who's been tremendously helpful in organizing uh, the events this evening. So I'd like to begin uh, with an anecdote, which is also the anecdote that I relate at the very start of my book. Um, and it takes us to a rainy day in Paris in April of 2009, where I had gone um, to look at a lot of different works of art related to Lafayette. And uh, on this particular rainy April day in 2009, I was at Versailles, and I had gone there in order to see this sculpture. This is a sculpture by Houdon, uh, and you have some in, uh, an Houdon sculpture in your exhibition. Um, this one, however, depicts Lafayette in the uh, costume of the French National Guard. Uh, this is a very important sculpture for a variety of reasons concerning its provenance. It was commissioned by the National Guard of Paris as a gift to the National Guard of Orléans. And so I went to see this sculpture, but I couldn't simply go to see it the way that one goes to see other things that are on view at Versailles because it's not on view. 
Um, in fact, instead, I had to make an appointment with the curator. And um, when I arrived, I discovered that he was not exactly overjoyed to see me. Uh, and it wasn't anything personal, I was quite certain. He had never met me before, so I had certainly not offended him. Um, but I came to realize in the first five minutes or so that I was with him that um, the sculpture was not only not on view, but it was also no place nearby. Um, we found ourselves leaving the main building of the chateau, walking outside, walking in the rain across slick cobblestones, walking past several outbuildings, and in Versailles there are many, um, until we finally arrived at a door, and, and he had a very large ring of antique keys with him, and he was flipping through them and sort of muttering to himself, because he wasn't sure which one it was that he needed, and eventually he identified the key, opened the door, and turned on the light, and there was a fine film of dust all over the room, signaling that this was not one of the more popular locations in the Chateau of Versailles. Nonetheless, I had come to see this sculpture, and I was standing there admiring it, quietly, respectfully, when all of a sudden the curator said, why should we have a bust of Lafayette? Now, he said it in French, so I thought perhaps I had misunderstood. So I said, pardon? And um, he did what one does when speaking to a foreigner, which is, he repeated the question louder. <laughs> And I, I said yes, that I had understood him the first time, and, and I naively perhaps began to explain that Lafayette was the French hero of the American Revolution. He had come to embody French-American friendship. He had been only 19 years old when he volunteered to uh, serve under George Washington uh, at no cost to himself, leaving behind his wife and one of France's largest fortunes. Um, he had fought uh, alongside Washington. He had been instrumental in the siege of Yorktown. He had been instrumental in persuading the French crown to come to the aid of the American colonies, and without that aid, we would not have won. And so certainly we have a bust of Lafayette. And I said all this, and he was distinctly not impressed. <laughs> And he motioned to a, um, to a plaque that was installed a few feet away. And this was a plaque that commemorated the thousands of Frenchmen who had come over and fought in our revolution, many of whom had died. And he said, all of these men fought and many died for your cause, and you don't know their names. And he said, it was Rochambeau, not Lafayette, who led the French forces. And besides that, Louis XVI bankrupted the country for your revolution, and he got his thanks on the guillotine. And nobody has sculptures of him. <laughs> so why, of all the Frenchmen, do you Americans insist on adoring Lafayette? And the thing is, I had to admit that he had a point. Which is not to say that Lafayette is not deserving, but which is to say that there were many others who were also deserving, and how was it precisely that we came to have a bust of Lafayette? So that was the first question I set out to answer in the book um, and that I hope to address tonight. But the second question that came to me while I was having this conversation was, why did the French not have busts of Lafayette or why was this a question in France? And as I started to delve into this question, I began to understand that Lafayette's reputation in France is quite mixed, unlike his reputation here. 
Um, and so this is an image that sums this up. This is a picture from the French Revolution, probably from around 1790 or so, that depicts Lafayette quite literally as two-faced. Uh, on the one side, he is a man of the people, and on the other side, he is a man of the court. And what this refers to is the fact that during the French Revolution, Lafayette objected to, did everything he could to stop the creation of an American-style republic in France. At the same time, he also did not believe that France should continue its absolute monarchy. Instead, Lafayette attempted to tread a middle ground towards a constitutional monarchy. And this was a middle ground that grew smaller and smaller and smaller as the revolution grew increasingly radicalized. Um, so that by the end of the revolution, Lafayette's belief in constitutional monarchy and belief that he knew it was best for France were more or less all that he had left because his, uh, his influence with both sides had collapsed. And today in France, he is remembered very, in a very mixed way as both the left and the right um, feel very lukewarm about him, shall we say. So I'd like to begin to answer the curator's question um, about why we have a bust of Lafayette. And part of the reason that we have a bust of Lafayette is that Lafayette wanted us to. And part of the reason that he wanted us to, I came to believe, is because he came to America, like many immigrants since, um, in order to reinvent himself. Now this might seem surprising, because this is where he was living when he chose to come here. <laughs> Now, this is not a place that one might necessarily wish to, uh, to leave. And let me just tell you a little bit about what we're looking at. On the right-hand side is an image of the Hotel de Noailles. It no longer stands. But as you can see, it was a magnificent, um, a magnificent complex of buildings uh, that was located, as you see on the left, it was located uh, on the Rue Saint-Honoré, very near the Tuileries Palace, which is very near where the Tuileries Gardens stand today, very near the Louvre Palace in the first arrondissement. Now, its proximity to, royal, to, to the royal palace in Paris signals the significant proximity that its inhabitants had to royal power. Because Lafayette had married into one of the most influential families at the court of Louis XV. It was the Noailles family. And the Noailles family uh, were among the, the, the closest intimates of Louis XV, one of his most, some of his most trusted advisors. This is where Lafayette had married into. But for him, this magnificent hotel was more of a gilded cage than anything else, because he did not come from here. He came from here. And this is a very different place. Um, what you see on the left is a map of France, and on the top, in the top box, I've uh, signaled where Paris is. The lower box is the Auvergne. Uh, has anybody here ever been to the Auvergne? Yes, what's it like? Mountainous, rustic, rural. Um, what is it? Walnuts. Walnuts. I am allergic to nuts, so I would not know that. I, I have, however, had excellent sausages and cheeses there, um, none of which had walnuts in them. Um, and they have excellent lentils as well. They're very well known for their lentils. Um, needless to say, um, the home of lentils and walnuts um, was not quite the same as hailing from uh, the proximity of royal power. Um, the, uh, the Auvergne is about 300 miles south of Paris, and what you see on the right-hand side are photographs that I took um, of the Chateau of Chavagnac, which is where he was raised. And you can see on the top uh, the chateau as it appeared in his time, and then you see on the bottom is a view of the surrounding area. As somebody said, it's mountainous. Now, 
to give you a sense, uh, today people visit the Auvergne seeking rustic, unadulterated nature, hardy fare. You can lodge in centuries-old stone huts that were once inhabited by shepherds. Um, but at the time, in the 1770s, the 1780s, the rustic charms of this place were somewhat less appreciated. Um, and so I just want to give you a little quote to give you a flavor of what it meant uh, to be from this area. This is a quote from the English agronomist Arthur Young, who visited there in 1789. Now, Arthur Young was admittedly an English agronomist, and he disliked much of what he found in France. Um, however, he was particularly critical of the capital of the Auvergne, uh, Clermont-Ferrand. So what he wrote was that Clermont, quote, is in the midst of a most curious country, all volcanic and is built and paved with lava. Much of it forms one of the worst built, dirtiest, and most stinking places I have met with. There are, he's not done. There are, there are many streets, he wrote, that can for blackness, dirt, and ill scent only be represented by narrow channels cut in a night dung hill. <laughs> So Lafayette loved the Auvergne dearly, uh, but it was not a fashionable place to call home. Now, had all gone according to plan, he would have lived and died uh, mostly in this region. Uh, his ancestors who had died elsewhere had died usually on the battlefield. Uh, his father had been killed fighting the English during, what, during the Seven Years' War, which we call here the French and Indian War, uh, at the Battle of Minden. Um, and in the Auvergne, in this area, his family represented more or less the totality of the local elite. He talked about his grandmother being sought out by people who would travel miles over these mountainous roads to get her opinions. Um, he also remembered that on his first visit to Paris that he was surprised, he was a child, but he was surprised that the men he passed on the route to Paris did not remove their hats in deference to his station. So this was how significant his family was in the Auvergne. They were absolutely the cream of the elite in that neighborhood. However, things changed. Thanks to a series of good marriages and early deaths, Lafayette found himself to be an orphan, one of the wealthiest men outside of the Princes of the Blood, and in 1774, he was married in to uh, the Noailles family. The 15-year-old Adrienne de Noailles became his wife. And what I'm showing you here on the top is Chavagnac, and on the bottom is Versailles. Now, at Versailles, where he found himself spending a great deal of time, uh, Lafayette's family notoriety in the Auvergne and his wealth counted for more or less nothing. Um, he was a very, very awkward 17-year-old. Um, he was a rugged young man from the provinces, and he fit in not at all. He was five foot nine inches tall, unusually large for the time, and he had not had learned none of that very um, intricate finesse, that very highly sophisticated etiquette that you really could learn only by having been raised at court. This was not something you could pick up in a book. It was something that you either lived or, or didn't know. Um, now, he himself, describing his time at Versailles in his memoirs, said that he was generally very reticent and that he refused to participate in discussions that did not, in his view, merit consideration. And this silence of his part, and this is an era of wit, it's an era, if you've seen the movie, really cool. This is an era when banter um, was extremely uh, popular. It's what sort of fueled polite society. But Lafayette did not have those verbal skills to participate in that. And he said that his silence um, 
created widespread disfavor. And he wrote in his memoirs that this was exacerbated by, quote, the gaucheness of my manners, which, without being out of place on any important occasion, never yielded to the graces of the court or the charms of supper in the capital. And this is apparently not a case of false modesty. Um, we have the memoirs of the Comte de la Marque, who is a Belgian nobleman and a confidant of Marie Antoinette, who remembered that Lafayette had these, these are damning traits I'm about to tell you, that he, he that Lafayette danced without grace. <laughs> and apparently sat badly on his horse. And evidently, again, Lamarck tells of a time when Lafayette participated in one of the dances that Marie Antoinette regularly sponsored, but he proved himself to be so maladroit that the queen could not stop herself from laughing. So this was not a welcoming place for a young man from the provinces, but for him it didn't really matter because he didn't imagine that his life belonged in court. He thought that the life of a courtier was inglorious. He thought that his life would be like his father's, that he would earn military glory and lasting fame through military valor, through valor on the battlefield. However, that dream came to a crashing halt in France in 1776, in the spring of 1776, when sweeping army reforms unceremoniously removed from the ranks of the officers in the French army many, many, many men who, like Lafayette, had risen through the ranks not through experience, but rather through wealth and connections, because that's how one rose through the ranks in those days. Um, so Lafayette found himself, along with hundreds of other officers, removed from the army placed into the reserves in the spring of 1776. And it was into this milieu in the summer of 1776 that a group of Americans arrived in Paris. And it just so happened that these Americans were all the rage. Now I'm fudging, Franklin arrived a couple of months later. But he was one of the Americans who came. Silas Dean was another. Um, and they had come to Paris in order to recruit um, a, a few engineers they were asked to find. They were asked also to round up money and guns and support for the American cause. Um, however, Silas Dean found himself suddenly sort of besieged by French officers, all of whom had been laid off, basically, of the French army, who wanted to line up to come to America. And they all wanted to join the American cause because there was no possibility of earning, um, of er developing their career further in France at the time. Moreover, they wanted a chance of revenge against the English. And so the French government was looking the other way quietly while, 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 while many, many, many um, French officers were coming over here. Um, at the same time, in, this, in the uh, high society of Paris, these Americans were all the rage. The reason that I have this painting, and you've probably seen others like it, there are many paintings like this by the same artist of Franklin all over the United States because everybody who was anybody in Paris wanted a portrait of Franklin above their mantelpiece. Um, everybody was toasting the Americans. They, they, in, the, in Paris, there was a card game called Whist, an English card game. They renamed it Le Boston in honor. <laughs> 
in honor of the uh, in honor of the insurgency. Um, meanwhile, uh, Marie Antoinette wanted to have Narragansett horses for her stables. They were kind of uh, they were uh, what's the word? Uh, they didn't really care what part of the colonies they honored. They were interested in all of them. Um, and uh, so this America was by far the most popular thing that had happened in the high society of, of Paris. And so Lafayette was one of the many, many officers who wanted to come over here. Now, many of them did, as I said, and the government simply looked the other way. However, Lafayette was different, um, in part because he uh, was very closely allied with the court through his family. And so Louis XVI now did not want him to come over because um, he thought that it would actually sort of be too obvious that the French court was in favor of the American Revolution, or at least was doing nothing to stop people from coming. And um, Louis XVI uh, also did not want to come out in open support yet because France was still uh, technically in a state of truce with England. So he did not want anybody who's going to create a splash, as it were. Well, Lafayette, as you'll recall, was an orphan and very wealthy. And so what he decided was that he was going to create a splash. Um, and he, in fact, said that to Silas Dean. He actually said, I can, he didn't say create a splash, but he said, I can create a stir, was actually the word that he used. He said, not only can I come over, but I can create quite a stir. And so he did. He purchased his own ship, and he sailed for America. So now when he arrived here in 1777, uh, to be completely honest, at first, George Washington was not entirely sure what to do with him. Um, because here was a man, 19 years old, who had been given the rank of major general and who had never served a day of battlefield action. And yet, uh, Lafayette arrived saying that he expected to be placed in command. So we have the wonderful letter from Washington in which he writes to Congress and says, what the intentions of Congress are regarding the Marquis de Lafayette, I know no more than the child unborn. Uh, he then goes on to say that there's this difference of opinion has occurred, whereby Lafayette expects to be placed in command, and Washington assumed that this title of Major General was merely honorary. So could someone please explain this to him? Um, as it happens, Benjamin Franklin could. Uh, he was in Paris, but a letter from Franklin arrives. And the letter basically to Washington basically says, listen, Lafayette is very well connected at court. His family is very well connected. He's very wealthy. All he wants is a little bit of glory. So please find an opportunity for him to be hazarded not much, that's the direct quote, hazarded not much, um, but where he can earn a bit of notoriety and then go home. Um, and this will help us in France. It will help to, um, to generate uh, interest in the American cause. Well, such a moment was at hand. Um, at this time, this is September of 1777, the British were marching towards Philadelphia, which they would shortly take. And um, the Battle of Brandywine occurred on September 11th of 1777. Now, as you can see from this image, the, the, the British are in red, as they are wont to be, uh, and the Americans are in blue. Um, and at the very bottom of this image, you see, uh, it says Chad's Ford, and you see that Washington is there. Washington Green. These are the names that these are the names of the various generals. Washington uh, expected that the British were going to attack with the full force at Chad's Ford because that's the most direct route to Philadelphia. So therefore, you see where it says Sullivan all the way up on the upper right. That's where he put Lafayette. 
Um, still on the battlefield, but hopefully as far away from the action um, as, as possible, because Washington wanted, Washington wanted to take Franklin's advice and to hazard Lafayette not much. So he placed him on the battlefield, but relatively far from what he imagined would be the fray. As it happened, though, Washington was surprised. Um, Washington himself was engaged with, it turns out, to be only about half of the forces, uh, while the other half came around up north and actually descended precisely upon where Lafayette was placed with General Sullivan. Well, Lafayette had come here in order to make a difference, and so um, although they were uh, badly outnumbered, Lafayette decided that nonetheless he was going to rally the troops and keep them on the battlefield uh, when a British musket, uh, tore through his, uh, musket shot tore through his leg. So Lafayette was wounded in the leg of the Battle of Brandywine. It was, not a, it was basically a flesh wound, um, but uh, he was nonetheless wounded, and his, his, uh, his boot was filling with blood when he was removed from the battlefield. Now, Washington actually, again, expected that all Lafayette wanted was a bit of glory, a bit. That's all he thought he wanted, and he would go home. So Washington actually inaugurated Lafayette's lasting American fame that very day with a letter that he wrote um, that appeared in all the Patriot newspapers, which described the loss of the Battle of Brandywine and mentioned only two men, um, one of whom General Woodford had been wounded in the hand, and the Marquis de Lafayette, who had been wounded in the leg. So Washington gave Lafayette the attention of his personal surgeon, and eventually Lafayette ended up um, in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where he recovered with the Moravian Brethren. Now, while he was there, Lafayette uh, was not about to make himself useless. He thought that, well, I had come here to make a difference. I came here to earn glory. I am not going to simply sit here, and if I can't make a difference on the battlefield, I'll make a difference with my pen. And so what he started doing was he started writing. And he started writing letters to both sides. And during his convalescence with the Moravian Brethren, he essentially turned himself into the foremost ambassador between France and the United States, purely of his own, of his own accord. He starts writing to Adrian, his wife, and to others in France, basically saying, don't believe what you're reading. Everything's going to be great. The Americans are going to win this thing, basically. Things were not looking good. But nonetheless, he was an optimist. He was an idealist. He was an enthusiast. And he was convinced that but through sheer force of will, he could make a difference. And the thing is that he was right. Um, meanwhile, he's writing to Americans saying, the French are going to come out and open support any moment. Don't lose faith. They're going to be here. It's all going to... Well, he so impressed George Washington with his... The sincerity, the vigor, the commitment, the earnestness that he showed, that by the time he actually recovered, Washington placed him in command, even though he had never seen a day of battlefield action. Um, so over the course of the next year, next year or two, uh, Lafayette learns from Washington. He fights alongside Washington. Uh, he takes very careful advice from Washington. He makes mistakes sometimes, and Washington mentors him and tutors him and helps him to become uh, a really excellent military commander. And meanwhile, Washington and Lafayette developed a very strong relationship, um, so strong that it's often described as father and son. Lafayette's father had died when Lafayette was only two years old, and Washington had no children of his own. So they developed a very, very close friendship. Um, and so uh, when, um, in, when the, sorry, when the uh, Treaty of Amity and Commerce was finally signed between France and the United States um, in 1779. Lafayette decides that he's going to go back to France, and by now what he wants to do is he wants to return to America to fight with Washington, but 
he wants to return at the helm of the French forces. Now again, he's by now at 21. Um, so, but the strongest argument he has at his, at his disposal for why he should be placed in command of the French forces is his close friendship with Washington. So he goes back to France and he, he makes quite a lot of his close connection to Washington and makes quite a lot of how beloved he is in America because he has one heart throughout America through his earnestness, through his manner, his disposition, which is very unlike anything that the Americans had experienced before among the other French officers whom Americans tended to find arrogant, um, uh, who tended to, tended to find a bit, you know, standoffish. But in Lafayette, they felt that they found a kindred spirit. And so Lafayette really used this argument about his closeness, his understanding of the Americans, to argue his point that he should be placed, he should be the one to come back here and lead the French forces. Um, so he does things like he has these, point, these paintings and prints commissioned um, of Washington. The one on the, on the left, uh, it's actually kind of a wonderful story. He, um, uh, he brings this painting with him to Benjamin Franklin's house outside of Paris for a 4th of July celebration to add to the decorations. And then he writes to the French foreign minister and says that he's doing this and says, you know, because our allies love that kind of thing. Um, uh, the French foreign minister was not so thrilled to be hearing about, you know, what our allies love from this young 21-year-old. Um, and on the right-hand side the image, it's actually in the exhibition. This is the print that Lafayette has commissioned, uh, which depicts, uh, it's a very fanciful view of Washington. Um, but at the bottom, it says, uh, this, this painting, is, this engraving is made after an original in the collection of the Marquis de Lafayette. So in other words, while, um, while this, paint, this print is being, is being sold and exhibited and circulated, it's also circulating Washington's name and Lafayette's together. Well, at the end of the day, as my curator friend observed, Lafayette was not granted command of the French forces. That honor went to the far older, far more experienced Rochambeau. Uh, however, uh, Vergen, the, the French um, uh, foreign, uh, foreign minister, said to Lafayette, why don't you be the one to carry the news to Washington? Um, because he recognized at this point that Lafayette had really become this symbolic figure of French-American relations, of French-American ties, friendship. And so he asked Lafayette to be the one to carry this good news to Washington that Rochambeau would be coming and bringing with him troops and ships and, and more. So what you see here is me, uh, a different haircut ago, uh, <laughs> in Rochefort, France, while the ship, the Hermione, was being built. Now the Hermione was here about two weeks ago. Um, so this is a couple of years back. Um, while it was still being built. But this is a reconstruction of the ship that Lafayette sailed on that 1780 voyage and that brought him from, uh, right here to Boston, in fact. So I hope that many of you were able to see the ship when she was here. She's actually just now, I believe today, uh, started on the return voyage back to, um, back to France uh, after making a grand tour of uh, much of the eastern seaboard. So Lafayette returns on the Hermia and returns to the United States um, plays a very important role in the uh, Virginia campaign, in the siege of Yorktown that marks the end of major hostilities of the American Revolution. So now, again, to come back to the, my curator's question, why do we have a bust of Lafayette? And why not all these other men? Well, part of the reason is that all these other men went back to France and they reprised whatever careers they had left behind. But as you'll recall, Lafayette had not left a career behind. Instead, America became his career. 
And America took up a place not only as in the center of his career, but really at the very center of his identity, at the center of his heart. Um, and what I'm showing you here is the townhouse in which much of this took place. Although I have to tell you, I'm fudging. Lafayette's exact townhouse, the one that he lived in, no longer exists. This townhouse that I'm showing you here was built on the same plan in the same year by the same developer next door to the one that Lafayette lived in. So for all intents and purposes, it's Lafayette's townhouse, um, or at least for the sake of argument this evening. Um, and the other, what I'm showing you on the map on the left is that on the upper left-hand side, I've circled the area where the Hotel de Noailles was, very near the seat of royal power, where he had been living with the Noailles family. He chose to live in a very different part of Paris, not too far away geographically, but far away socially. Um, as you can see, if, you, if it's clear enough on the, on the map on the right, uh, in the box on the right, that when this mid-18th century map was created, there were a lot of empty lots there. It was a newly developed area. It was not like this very, very established part of town where he had been living with the Noai family. So he purchased this townhouse in 1784, and it's quite a lovely place, but it's relatively modest in size compared to the uh, Hotel de Noai. Um, and in this townhouse, Lafayette essentially turned this into a centerpiece for all things American. Um, as you can see in the, uh, in the image, there's, a, a, I guess, French doors. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Um, on the, no pun intended. On the second story, uh, you see there's a, a, there's, a, there's a railing, and behind the railing is a set of French doors. That's where Lafayette's home, where, where his study, his cabinet was. And on the walls of his cabinet, he kept a Declaration of Independence engraved in gold. Uh, which he commissioned uh, in part with help from Benjamin Franklin's grandson. And downstairs, you can see there's a rounded room. That was the, set, that was the salon, it was the center of sort of uh, sociability there. And Lafayette, um, every Monday night, his, the uh, Lafayettes had Americans over for dinner. And he, in fact, made up, had made up a, um, uh, a printed, engraved invitation in English that said, the Marquis and Marquise de Lafayette cordially invite you to dinner on Monday the blank at their home on such and such. Um, and to the, the people who received these invitations and who came regularly were the Franklins, the Adamses, the Jeffersons, Governor Morris, anybody who is an American was welcome at Lafayette's Monday dinners. And it was well known that if you were American that you were welcome to come to these events. And at these Monday night dinners, Lafayette's children apparently entertained the, uh, the, the visitors with songs in English. They spoke English. English was the only language spoken. And his children, by the way, were named George Washington Lafayette <laughs> and um, Virginia Lafayette, Virginie. And when Virginia was born, in fact, Benjamin Franklin quipped, because Benjamin Franklin could not resist a good quip, uh, Benjamin Franklin quipped that, there, there he is, uh, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin quipped that he hoped that the Lafayettes would have 13 children so that they could name, <laughs> although I have to say, and I mean no disrespect by this, he said he felt sorry for Miss Massachusetts. <laughs> Because it was not a very mellifluous name. In any event, 
Um, Lafayette uh, devoted himself in the early 1780s and throughout the 1780s to becoming America's foremost French friend. And so he, he was no longer serving us on the battlefield, but he was serving us now in court and, um, and among the ministers. And he was doing things like helping to establish favorable trade relations between the countries. Um, the, uh, there was a, a visiting American, John Ledyard, an explorer who was in France at the time in 1787. And he wrote of Lafayette that he has planted his tree in America and sits under its shade at Versailles. So Lafayette really established himself in the 1780s as the foremost ally of America in France. And so it was only natural that in 1789, when, um, when France started heading towards its own revolution, um, Lafayette would be the person to whom the nation turned. And this image from 1789 shows Lafayette helping France to slay the hydra of despotism. Now again, at the start of the revolution, Lafayette was in support of the revolution because he believed that it would lead to a constitutional monarchy of the kind that they had in England. He believed that would be the end point of the revolution, that it should be the end point of the revolution. Um, and in 1789, on July 14th, when the Bastille was stormed, it was to Lafayette that Paris turned. Um, and I'm showing you here, just again for the record, two images, uh, both of which Lafayette versions of each of these. He collected images and objects related to um, all of the events that he had participated in. So on the left is, um, is a, a painting of the storming of the Bastille, and the right is just one of my favorite objects of all time. Um, it is a sculpture of the Bastille carved from a stone of the Bastille by somebody who was liberated from the Bastille. Um, who basically created a cottage industry of selling these things. Because as you can see, the materials were free. They were tearing down the building. Um, and he traveled around France selling these objects. And we know that Lafayette had one. Um, but so Lafayette, uh, on the morning after, July 15, 1789, Lafayette was asked to become the head of what became known as the French National Guard. And he was charged with keeping the peace in Paris on the assumption that he would become the French Washington, that he would become the person who would lead his nation to a new era of liberty. However, things in France were different than they were in America. And um, before long, matters spiraled out of control. Um, what I'm showing you here is uh, a, a, a very important event that began on uh, October 5th, 1789, and it marked a turning point in Lafayette's career in France. Um, what I'm showing you here is an image from the time. It was early in the morning before dawn on the morning of uh, October 5th when a group of market women, sellers of fish and other staples, began gathering at the Hôtel de Ville City Hall where Lafayette's uh, office was located. And they were starving. They had no bread to feed their family. And they were demanding a march to Versailles. They said they were going to go to Versailles and they had no bread and they were going to bring back the baker and his wife, namely the king and the queen. By the time Lafayette arrived, matters had grown a bit chaotic and these women uh, were now heavily armed. They had brought whatever cannons they could drag through the streets. They found pitchforks and they found scythes and they found pikes and they found knives and swords and anything they could get. And by the mid-afternoon, they were joined by their husbands and brothers and sons. And now there were thousands of very angry, very armed people demanding a march to Versailles. And by the time Lafayette got there, the National Guard had decided they were going to go with them. They were going to accompany this crowd to Versailles. 
So Lafayette received a face-saving order from the government of Paris and accompanied them to Versailles. He traveled through the night on horseback, through rain and mud, and by the time he got there early in the morning, still dark on October 6th, the heads of two royal bodyguards were making their way back. The bodies of the two royal bodyguards were still at Versailles. And Lafayette brokered a deal. Uh, he spoke to the king and the queen, and he promised them. Now remember, he was earnest, he was idealistic, he was optimistic, he was convinced that he could make a difference, and he promised the king and the queen that if they came back with him to Paris, he would protect them. So the next morning, he accompanied the king and the queen and this large crowd um, back to Paris, and he installed the king and the queen in the Tuileries Palace, where he'd been living directly across the street in the Hotel de Noailles. Now, with this event, he lost the support of the right wing. And this term, right and left, actually comes from the French Revolution. Um, he lost the support of the absolute monarchists. And just to give you a sense of, uh, of, a, of the flavor of a quote from a monarchist newspaper, um, one of them wrote, Why citizens have Lafayette and the leaders of the commune left you wanting for bread? Imbecile residents of Paris, these villains think that you have too much life left in you. The anonymous author insisted that anyone would be a fool to believe their, hand, their lives more secure, quote, in the hands of the traitor Lafayette, the scoundrel, this vampire, than in those of your good king. So for a time, Lafayette retained um, his, uh, his influence among the people. And on, what I'm showing you on the left, so I'm saying the people as opposed to the supporters of the monarchy. Um, what I'm showing you on the left is uh, the moment that was the height of Lafayette's uh, French fame. It was July 14, 1790, the first anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, when Lafayette led the nation in swearing an oath to the nation, the law, and the king. Now again, Lafayette believed that this would be the pinnacle of the revolution. The nation, the law, and the king together, a constitutional monarchy, he thought that was the, the end of the revolution. And this event happened on the Champ de Mars where the Eiffel Tower stands today. Um, and for, again, so for this period of time, he retained his popularity among the people, but he lost it almost exactly one year later in exactly the same spot. Um, on the right-hand side is an image from the period depicting an event that went down in history as the massacre at the Champ de Mars. Um, so again, it was the Champ de Mars, and this was July 17, 1791. Now, about a month earlier, the king and the queen had attempted to flee the country, and they had been arrested in a town called Varennes, so it's been known as the flight to Varennes. Um, a month later, a crowd gathered on the Champ de Mars to, to sign a petition declaring the monarchy abdicated, and basically a riot broke out. Martial law was declared, and Lafayette and the National Guard were called in to keep the peace. What exactly happened that day, we still don't know. Uh, we know that stones were thrown. We know that shots were fired. We know that Lafayette's men were patrolling the perimeter on horseback and that they opened fire on the people. Somewhere between eight and 100 people died. We don't know how many because the, the records are so completely contested to this day that you actually can't tell. So as I said, the radical press immediately dubbed this the massacre at the Champ de Mars. And one journalist on the left now wrote, of Lafayette that he perceived, quote, nothing but the most dangerous enemy of liberty in you, in whom we placed all our confidence, and who should have been liberty's strongest supporter. 
So this was 1791. For the next year or year and a half, um, caricatures of Lafayette came out in, uh, in, in newspapers of all, uh, and sorry, in, in um, pamphlets of all political stripes. Some of the kinder ones are the one that you see here, Lafayette as, a, as a, an ineffective scarecrow attempting to protect the country. Uh, what you see on the left is sort of a little pun. It's Lafayette as a centaur, le centaur, the blameless one, but the centaur, the blameless one in French, but also the centaur. Lafayette became very well known for riding around on his white horse, so much so that horse and rider were often said to have fused. Um, so we often see Lafayette depicted in French caricatures as a centaur, but this particular centaur is riding, bli galloping blithely past the heads of royalists, um, which are on pikes as he's dropping the key to the Bastille in front of him. Um, and then one, the image that I think sort of sums things up is this one from probably around 1791-92. The caption in French would read, Lafayette treated as he deserves by the Democrats and the aristocrats, which is to say that those on the left, the people who want to establish a republic, and those on the right, the ones who want to maintain a, an absolute monarchy, they agreed on nothing at all except that they both wanted to kill Lafayette. Um, and these are some of the kinder images. Uh, I keep my presentations PG, but there are some that are definitely not that are actually in the book. Um, so yes, I don't know if that's a warning or a, or a sales pitch, but there you are. It's the fact. Um, so finally, in 1792, with the monarchy abolished and the radical Robespierre ascendant, uh, a warrant went out from Paris for Lafayette's arrest. Had he not fled across the Belgian border on August 19, 1792, he would surely have been executed as an enemy of the revolution. Instead, he was turned over immediately to Austrian authorities and arrested as an enemy of the king. I just want to say that one more time. He fled the country because he was going to be arrested as an enemy of the revolution, and instead he was arrested as an enemy of the king. Well, he spent the next five years in a series of Austrian prisons, and he remained a prisoner until 1797. In 1799, he returned to France and to French politics, but he never regained the level of fame, of adulation in France that he had had in 1790, and he certainly never regained the level of fame and adulation in France that he enjoyed here. And so in 1824-25, he returned to the United States at the moment that really finally imprinted his mark, I think, permanently on the American landscape. And this is when he and his son returned for a 13-month triumphal tour of every state in the Union. And this was the time when Lafayette College was named, when Lafayette streets and parks and cities and towns and villages were all named. Um, and this was also the time when the Industrial Revolution was just getting to the point where basically tchotchkes were available, widely, <laughs> at every price point. Um, so that at the bottom left, you see uh, a glove that, that has Lafayette's face on it. It's a ball glove that a woman wore to a ball honoring Lafayette. There were gloves. There were uh, Lafayette College, we were speaking about earlier, has recently acquired a, a baby shoe that has Lafayette's face on it from 1824-25. At the New York Historical Society, I saw a, um, a bread pan where when you bake your bread in it and you turn it out, it comes out with the word Lafayette across the top of it. 
I'm not, you can't make these things up. There were, in the exhibition, there are coins that were minted at the time, um, and even the English got into the act. The image on the upper right is a, an English transferware plate depicting Lafayette at the tomb of Washington. Um, the English didn't care by this point. They'd already lost the United States, but, um, but they were in it for the buck. Um, and everybody who went to any of these balls, I mean, every place Lafayette went, he was celebrated with balls, with fireworks, with orchestral performances, theatrical performances, parades, and anybody who went to any of these balls kept whatever it is that they wore, and they donated them to historical societies, which is why we have them everywhere. I actually have a friend, this is an anecdote, but I have a friend whose ancestor hosted Lafayette and kept a piece of cake. <laughs> Lafayette eaten from this piece of cake and then sent this piece of cake to another ancestor of my friend with a note saying Lafayette ate from this piece of cake. Um, so he was the first hero, the first celebrity, the first sort of Beatlemania kind of visit to America. Um, and so when Lafayette died, he was a tremendous hero in America still, but in France he was absolutely still not a hero. Um, in fact, when he died, no speeches were allowed at his graveside. Um, and so in 1917, when Chavagnac was falling apart, it was a group of Americans who purchased it to save it. And they said, as you can see in this article from the New York Times, they were going to turn it into a French Mount Vernon. Um, now, I also just have to share with you, this is a different angle than you saw before. That's because the angle I showed you first is what it looked like in Lafayette's time. When the Americans bought it, they didn't think it looked medieval enough. <laughs> so they added this tower with the crenellations to make it look more medieval. Um, so again, in 1834, when Lafayette died, in Paris, uh, the United States observed a day of mourning, and in Paris, he was barely missed. We have a letter from Isaiah Townsend of Albany, who happened to be there, and he wrote to his mother and said, it's been scarcely a month since the general has died, and his name is not heard on the streets of Paris. And so it was an American flag now that now still today flies over Lafayette's grave. And as you can see, um, his grave was actually supported by, its, its renovation was supported by the Benjamin Franklin chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Today, so little does France still love Lafayette that the monumental critical dictionary of the French Revolution from 1988 states flatly about Lafayette that, quote, the man has drawn few eulogies. Now, it's patently untrue. They might dislike him, but he's certainly drawn many eulogies. John Quincy Adams famously gave a three-hour eulogy for Lafayette, and John Quincy Adams didn't even like Lafayette. <laughs> but so to end where we began, why should we have a bust of Lafayette? It's not because he was the unsullied hero that we might have in our imaginations. He was not, he was human. And actually that's what I tried to really bring across in my book was actually that he was not born as a statue. He was not born as a bust. He was born as a human being. He was born as a human being who made choices, some of which were perfect, some of which were imperfect. But what I've personally come to admire about Lafayette is that he gave his all to everything he took on. He took on only those causes that he considered to be the most crucial, the most important uh, issues of his generation, and he clung to his principles until they were quite literally all that he had left. 
When he failed, and he sometimes failed, when he failed, the enemies he made used any means at their disposal to sully his name for centuries to come. But when he succeeded, he earned the eternal gratitude of generations of Americans, and that bust is just one small sample of our expression of gratitude. Thank you. <laughs>